All right. Well, welcome back. Now that the students are gone, um, some are still. How many of you are still students? How many of you are students? So, still some students here, so we can't say bad things too much about them. Uh, not that we would. Not that we would anyway. Um, so they give me an hour to talk and then questions. No, an hour including questions, as I was saying. Um, and so keep in mind that the flow on this uh, on this day is largely driven by a selection process that that people voted on. And so um, so we're going to continue that process, kind of walking through uh, what you voted on by talking about discipleship today. Um, we're going to talk about uh, how do we how do we create and grow discipleship? I love the shut the door, keep the latecomers, make them make them feel bad. Um, that's the that's the Baptist in me. Um, so so we're going to talk some about the uh, about disciple making and how disciple making matters in sort of considering how we how we grow. Now to do this, what I would like to do is I actually like to work through a text. And the text is going to be, I've got it here on my, my iPad, so I don't have a paper Bible before you, which is ironic, considering one of the things I'm going to tell you in just a minute is always have a paper Bible. But, um, but what I want to talk about is um, five practices of a growing disciple. I want to build this on the basis of some research and um, kind of through the grid of Scripture. Now, uh, I'm going to, I often do research because research, I'm a, I lead a research team. I'm the president of LifeWay Research. So... Uh, every time I quote a statistic, an angel actually gets its wings. And so there'll be some stats that I'll quote or show. But I think ultimately discipleship is such a central theme through the New Testament that, uh, you know, Jesus saying, you know, central command of the Great Commission, the only verb in the Great Commission, and go ties into it, is, is to make disciples. And so, so what does that look like? And, and, and how do we engage that? Because here's one of the reasons why. So, you know, I, again, my, I'm kind of a missiologist for the English-speaking Western world. So here's, here's the reality. Here's what our research shows us. What our research shows us, we survey across the Western world, is this. The majority of people in the majority of churches are unengaged in meaningful ministry and mission. Now, you might say, well, first of all, that's a broad statement. So you're including churches that maybe, you know, don't preach this or don't teach that. No, 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 no. I'm telling you. The majority of people in the majority of churches of all denominational traditions, including in evangelicalism, um, the majority of people in majority of churches are unengaged in meaningful ministry and mission. So most people sort of come for the show, but don't actually stay for the serve. Um, and now some of you say, well, we don't have a show at our church. We're more godly. Um, you know, we're, you know, that's those churches. You know, and you've got, you got a church or churches in your mind right now. But I will tell you this, you know, I, I mean, again, I preached for, uh, I preached at an Anglican church of the 16, what prayer book? 1662, the 1662 prayer book. But I will tell you, you know why, and again, Justin's a friend, so I'm not like calling out Justin's church. Um, you, know, a lot of the, you know why a lot of people come there? Because they're customers of the 1662 prayer book. And I can go down the road and a lot of people who are customers of the big band, you know, big, big light show smoke machine service down the road. But in, in both cases, when you average it out, the majority of people in the majority of churches are unengaged in meaningful ministry and mission. And what's the issue is that people aren't engaged in mission because people haven't been discipled. People aren't engaged in mission because people haven't been discipled. And so what I want to talk about is five practices of, uh, of, uh, of, of a growing disciple and why they matter. Why? At the end of the day, what I want to do is I want you to help your congregation. You're, you're either pastors or leaders, and I don't think you probably were just walking by on a beautiful morning and say, oh, there's a conference, let me go there. Uh, but, I mean, you're pastors or leaders, and so how do you help your church uh, move people from being uh, passive spectators to actively be active participants in the mission of God? And I want to use the passage here to walk, walk through it, is uh, Philippians chapter 2. Beginning of verse 12, going to verse 15. I'm going to use the HCSB translation. Any, any of you use the HCSB? A couple of you, several of you, okay. Um, and so, so I'm going to use the HCSB. Here's what it says. It says, So then, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for as God who's working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose do everything without grumbling and arguing uh, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. Um, and so what I want to talk about here is, 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 is five things that sort of come from this that I hope we'll find helpful. Um, number one on our outline 
is the need for uh, persistent faithfulness. Now, um, when I talk about persistent faithfulness, Paul kind of uh, phrases this in the sense of, of, uh, of his presence and his absence. So it says in verse, uh, chapter 12, excuse me, verse 12 of chapter 2, it says, So then, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence. So, so in his presence they obeyed, not him, but the Lord. Um, so in his, pre- in, his, in his presence they obeyed, but now he's saying, in my absence you also obeyed. And I will tell you that, that, that that shows a mark of persistent personal faithfulness, a persistent personal faithfulness that is evident in the lives of the disciples. And what we have found is, is that persistent personal faithfulness is key if you're going to raise up disciples uh, in your church or your, your ministry. So discipleship for us, right? So we're going to apply Paul's comments that in his presence and his absence, and we're going to apply that in the cycle of church life, which might be Sunday versus Monday through Saturday, right? Uh, so discipleship is not a Sunday practice. It's a daily process. Discipleship is not a Sunday practice. It's a daily process. As a matter of fact, why are you smirking? You should write that down. You're going to coach people. Should I tell them that? Here's, I'm going to tell you, Joel, Joel, did you not know that you needed to write that down? Because, I mean, really, that seemed pretty self-evident that I should, you should have wrote that down. Are you his friend? Do you serve with him? Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> not that I'm over here on him now. Okay, all right. All right, so, so I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't like, can you say that again? Did you get it? Oh, let me say it. Discipleship. Are you from Tasmania? No. Okay. Uh, Western Australia? Uh, sorry. They like, tell me to say these things, like, make a joke about Tasmania. And then I'm like, what if that's, like, really a place that you shouldn't joke about? You did say that. You did say it was you, you liar. Uh, you cannot believe him at all. Anyway, um, so discipleship is not a Sunday practice. It's a daily process. You good, Joel? Thank you. All right. All right. Uh, so, <laughs> so, 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 but this is a really key thing because pastors, how many of you are preaching pastors? You're preaching at some point. Okay, good, good, good. A bunch of you. Okay. So, um, so, so if you're, if you're a, um, oh, you guys got like uniforms. That is so cool. So if that, that is so awesome. They have uniforms. You guys have nothing, uh, except you, sir, with the beard, you, sir, you stand above the rest of us. Um, you're a godly man. You're, you're familiar with gospel bearded men. You need gospel. Go to the gospel bearded men website. It's one of the best websites in the world. I'll tell you, a month ago, I trimmed uh, uh, 10 centimeters. I was 10 centimeters longer here, and I, I trimmed back for you. Not for you personally, because you and I, we could have bend, bend it over a, a, over a stogie somewhere. Um, so, but anyway, so, 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 all right, so you guys are preaching. All right, so when you preach, here's the thing that I think is, is, is significant and helpful to know, is that, is that most pastors, when polled, believe that the most important time for the spiritual growth and formation of their people is in their Sunday message. But statistically, it's actually not. The pastors think that it is, but statistically, the most important time is actually an ongoing community conversation, typically in small groups, that has a more deeply impactful pro- uh, uh, impact in discipleship. And furthermore, individual daily practices are much more important. So, so what I would say is this. I, I don't want you to like not prepare your... Well, that's it. I'm done. I'm out. Uh, I'm going to get up now. We're going to press video, and someone's going to watch someone else preach. Um, no, that's not it. But what I would say to you is this, is that knowing that isn't the most important thing you would therefore do is to get people to pick up their Bible on Monday when you're done on Sunday. So, so, so that's what you want. You want to proclaim the gospel. You want to teach the scriptures. But you want to help people be, Eugene Peterson has a phrase I really love um, about discipleship, is long obedience in the same direction. That's what you want to teach people, is long obedience in the same direction. You know, I'm the father of three daughters, um, so you can pray for me. Uh, and I love my girls. And, but I will tell you that now that I have a 16-year-old, I have a 13-year-old, I have a 10-year-old, 10-year-old's with me, I'll tell you, the most important thing I know in the lives of my daughters is not that they think that our church is awesome, not that they think their dad's a good or a bad communicator. What most important to my daughters is that they pick up the Bible and they actually read it on their own. And when they do, in some sort of disciple-making way, that correlates with spiritual formation that is life-transforming. Now, now the challenge is, is, uh, is this, is that, that that's kind of old school. So what I'm saying to you is consistency in the Bible Statistically, right, we've done a statistical analysis of this. Consistency in the Bible is the number one correlative factor to every area, every other area of spiritual growth. Now let me let me show you 
uh, let me show you a couple things off of a different presentation here that might be helpful. So we did research, and what we did is we studied uh, 4,000 uh, church-going uh, Protestant attendees, and what we found were there were eight attributes of discipleship that were evident, and uh, those of you who are stats nerds, um, uh, these were statistically significant, correlated, um, they formed a scale, scales, and, uh, and the factors loaded. If that means anything to you, then you've taken stats, and, and if that was really boring, then you're normal. Um, and, but these eight things were attributes that were there. Now, what's interesting is, and I don't want you to miss this, these eight things, that Bible engagement was the number one statistically significant factor that correlated and sometimes predicted all the other things as well. So, so I was asked to speak, and I'm sort of a speaker, whatever I am. Um, and, and I got asked to speak at this conference in D.C., uh, on the nation's capital. Um, and while I was there, it was a conference called the Q Conference. I don't really know how they were equivalent in Australia. Um, but it's sort of a mix of faith leaders and politics, political leaders, and, or I should say governmental leaders and, you know, and education leaders. And so it's not a distinctly Christian uh, well, I don't know how to put it. I mean, I guess because Gabe Lyons puts it on, is, 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 it's, it's got a Christian focus. But they get really eclectic people to come speak. So, so there are four speakers. It's kind of like, like TED Talks where you have like 20 minutes. And it's like, yeah, maybe you did fix it. It's good. Um, but um, but, but it's, it's, uh, so, so, it's, so President Obama was one of the other speakers. So it's like, it was like, it's an odd, you know, this is not my normal venue. I'm not trying to like, you know, well, look at that name he just dropped. No, no, I mean, like, I was like, really? Seriously? Um, but they asked me to talk about because the theme was like for the common good, for the uh, how do we work for the common good. And so they asked me to speak on how do we help Christians statistically, what's the statistical factor that is most effective at helping Christians to engage the hurting? Now, you'll actually see that here under serving God and others, number three. And so statistically, what correlates with serving God and others? And so <laughs> the problem was the number one statistical correlation was to get them to read the Bible daily. So, so I get up at this avant-garde gathering of pol- you know, political leaders. And I say, all right, here's the key. Get them to read the Bible every day. And people are like, seriously, and I just walk through this. You can find this online. I walk through and show the statistical correlation. Here's what it boils down to. People of devout and, uh, and, and sincere faith serve God and others more faithfully and more consistently. And, so, and that's, a, that's across the board. People who, who have sincere religious faith and practice are going to be those who serve the hurting. And so, so consistency of the Bible over and over and over and over again becomes this, uh, becomes this theme that, 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 that we find as, as central to understand the spiritual growth process. Now, let me show you why that matters, right? So what matters is people, Christians, um, this, is, this, is, this, is, uh, uh, this is a couple of nations. It doesn't include Australia. We don't have this research in Australia. And again, I, would, I want to say to you that I know, I know and I'm very much aware that there will be some differences and there are some nuances. But this, this sample is, uh, is North American. And, but look, at, look here. So these, these are Protestant church-going attendees, right, who, who, who attend uh, you know, regular basis in church. Uh, if I go several days out reading the Bible, I find myself unfulfilled. Okay, well, it's actually, so, so we agree. We've got some agrees over here, right? So that's 47%. Uh, but we've got over here, we actually have like 12%. I mean, these are regular church-going attendees. And you put these two together, these are the disagrees, and you've got 33%, oh, nah, whatever. And then, and then, yeah, this, you got 53%. So 53% couldn't come to the place that they would agree with this. The majority of respondents who go to church regularly couldn't come to the place where they'd say, oh, you know, I kind of go unfulfilled. Now, even saying that, you've got to remember, one of the things that statistically happens is that people tend to overinflate their answers to the good. Uh, there's a technical word for that in research. We call it lying. Uh, okay, that's not the technical word. We call that the halo effect, is that people tend to answer in a way that is statistically desirable. Is Tony Abbott popular still or unpopular now? I mean, if you did polls, people poll these things. I'm not talking with you. I'm talking about in the culture. You know, kind of mid, mid, mid-range. No, not, not popular. Okay. 40%. Okay, okay. We call that unpopular where I come from. All right. So, um, okay. so, so now I recognize that you know, electoral processes are a little different, but, but in, in, in our nation... Um, you know, George Bush uh, was, uh, he won a popular election. He just won one popular election, oddly. Uh, he won two elections, but only won by the popular vote. Uh, but the second one he won. So the majority of Americans have voted for George, have voted, who voted, have voted for George Bush. But if you actually poll them, and we have a somewhat direct electoral process, um, not completely direct, or else he wouldn't have won the first time. Um, but if you actually poll Americans today, did you vote for George Bush? The majority, a strong majority, say no. 
And, and what's fascinating is research I've done, they actually remember it differently. Now, President Obama's pretty unpopular right now. Um, and so, so kind of maybe coming out a little bit of that. But, but so what happens is, is that people, I mean, studies have shown that people remember differently. So they're really not lying. Sometimes they are, but, they, but, but they're really not always lying. So but why do I say that? Because these numbers we know are what people answered, but we also know that this side will be more inflated than this side. So the reality might be a shift of 10 to 20 points this direction. So let me say again, that means the vast majority of people could not agree with this statement who were Protestant, regular, church-going attendees. That's a problem. Does that make sense? Um, when, on the other hand, we get a very clear teachings of Scripture over and over again, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Holiness, the sanctification comes when through spiritual disciplines we receive, humbly receive the word implanted um, and, and, and in our lives and we grow accordingly. So, so, so that's, that's the first thing I want you to see. Uh, the second thing I want you to see is the necessity of intentional effort. The necessity of intentional effort. In other words, there are things you need to do. Now, you say, well, that seems a little contrary to what you said earlier when you said the gospel is not you do, the gospel is Jesus did. But here's the thing. This is what the second part of verse 12 says. It says, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. So, so you and I have a call to uh, work out. Now, notice it doesn't say work on your own salvation or work for your own salvation. Uh, that's a very, very important distinction in language and translation. Uh, because, and I'll tell you why it's important to me. You know, so I grew up, um, I was telling uh, uh, Gary, uh, Gary uh, Millar. Do you say it Miller even though it's A-R? Yeah, okay, Gary Miller. Um, we were, uh, I, I'm actually Irish with a Dutch last name. Seems a little weird, but my family's decidedly Irish. We come from Drogheda in a little fishing village uh, in Ireland. Um, and, and so we were you know, catching up just a, just a little bit with him. But, you know, I, I grew up, I was Irish. We were Irish Catholic. That was kind of the, the law. And Irish Catholics are a couple of different things, in, at least in the States, a lot of Irish migration. So really, we weren't like involved Catholics, but the Catholic Church was the church we didn't go to on Sundays. If we were to go, that would be the one we go to, we just didn't go. Um, so, but my, my grandmother was the one person who took her Catholicism seriously. And I remember about a few years ago, I was by her bedside as she died, and um, as she was dying, and then she died a few days after. Um, and I remember her saying, and she said several things that, 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 that were just hard for me to hear. Things like, I'm just trying to make sure I've done enough good before I die that balances out the bad. And, and uh, those kind of things that, that, that you know, she, she, she believed. She, she inherited uh, both, both ethnically. It's a weird thing. It's an ethno-linguistic religious expression in Irish Catholicism. And so I just read the scriptures to her, and I read the scripture, and I prayed with her, and I and I I, I, I believed with her, and 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 I and, and we prayed together. And so um, so so, but here's the deal. One of the things that that uh, my grandmother thought she had to work uh, work for her own salvation, and 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 that that you know that ethno linguistic religious expression where she came from. That's sort of what what she learned and what believed. And so there's a but the, there's the thing. It's not just my grandmother. There's a whole world out there. Uh, you know, Tim Keller, you know, I've kind of got a bit of a man crush on Tim Keller. Um, but Tim says it this way. He says, every religion in the world is, uh, I, 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 I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I follow the rules, God will accept me. Uh, where Christianity is, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And, and, so, and so that, to me, is, is, is fundamental and central to understanding what the gospel is and what it, what it even means. And so, um, but, but here's the thing. My grandmother is no different than Baptists in the American South. Uh, my, or Pentecostals in the American Midwest, or or in the in, in, in you know in, in Labrador in Canada, where where you know there's a lot of people who think, well, I just got to be a good Pentecostal and I'll get to heaven. Now, what I would say is this: you have to be really careful with this verse, but you can't ignore this verse. It does say, "Work out your own salvation." So our salvation is God's gift; it's free. So it'd be easy to read this verse, think it meant something else, but you could. Uh, you, you could be confused by such. Here's the thing. Here's a phrase that will help. There's a guy named Dallas Willard. I don't quote him a lot, but I like what he says here. Um, Dallas Willard puts it this way. Uh, grace, it's all about God's grace. I want to be clear about what God's grace is and what effort is. How does God's grace 
relate to effort. Do we effort to earn God's grace? Do we effort to earn God's favor? Well, here, here's the way Willard puts it. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Does that, does that make sense? I mean, it's so helpful to me. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. And, and I think there is an efforting that is evident in the scripture. Right? Think about Paul, Colossians 1, um, 28, 29. He says, we proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. I mean, those are, those are efforting words, right? Um, in 1 Corinthians 3.8, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, uh, God gave the growth. There's a process of discipleship and an intentional effort that has to be made as we grow in our spiritual formation. Paul references his own work, and I want you to hear that if you're going to have a discipled congregation, you're going to effort to help grow them, and they're going to effort to grow as well. Now, now, how does that balance out? Well, let's, let's take a look at number three on our, on our outline today, is uh, radical reliance, is radical reliance. So Paul is continuing his instruction here, right? And he says in, in the third part of verse 12, he says to work out your own salvation, you may have thought I left it out, but I want to do it next time, in the next section, is with fear and trembling. Now, fear and trembling speak about that reverential awe of a holy and powerful God. And so with fear and with trembling, we work out. Now, why would there be with fear and trembling? Because it's a reliance on a holy God. It's not just just us saying, let's just grow. Let's just be better people, right? And, And see, this is so important, right? The gospel is not about turning over a new leaf. It's about receiving new life. But that new life actually has to be lived, Joel, you should write that down. The gospel is not about turning over a new leaf. It's about receiving new life, but that life actually has to be lived. You've got to grow up in life. And then it says this, uh, Paul goes on and says, For it's God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. So let's look at two things in here. So it's God, God working in you, um, enabling you to do two things, right? Enabling you both to desire. So if you want to grow, that's from God. And then it says to desire and to work out his good purpose. So if you even want to have spiritual growth, that's a gift from God. And if you're going to grow, that's a gift from God. But he's going to call you to work out your own salvation, to grow in this new life that you have, which is not news to us, right? Maybe sometimes it depends upon your theological tradition. Uh, There's a whole lot of people in a theological tradition who think that what they got to do is try really hard, be really, you know, grow, be good, whatever. And there's a whole lot of people who think, well, I just got to rest in who I am. You know, the, the imperatives and the indicatives, you know, who I am in Christ and what I should be doing. And I actually, I mean, I just think we have to have both, right? Philippians 1.6 is a beautiful picture of that. It says, uh, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you, God started it. He'll carry it on. He will carry it on till the com- till completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Um, so, so, again... A lot of Christians can trust Jesus with their death. What I want you is to trust Jesus, Jesus with growing in your, in your new life. Now, the danger here is this, is you can't and you don't want to. And, it, and, and sometimes people might just want to be like Jesus, but trying to become like Jesus outside of the power of Jesus dishonors Jesus. Say it again. Trying to become like Jesus outside the power of Jesus dishonors Jesus. And so, so even as we work out our own salvation to become more like Jesus, we do that in the power of Jesus. There's action on your part. There's efforting on your part. But the power comes from God. And, and so, so we see, and it has to be taken seriously, with fear and trembling, we work out our own salvation. Um, so, so again, I, I quoted Philippians 1.6. Here it is on the screen. That you started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ Jesus. Number four is... Um, Christ-like transfer, uh, transformation. Okay, you want to reflect the character of God in your life. You want to look like your father. Discipleship leads you to looking more like a child of God. So verse 14 says this. Uh, Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Okay, so that's good, good, just good phrase in general. But then it says, why? So you may be blameless and pure, children of God. You're going to look like Jesus, children of God, who are faultless 
in a crooked and perverted generation. We live in a crooked and perverted generation. The Western context in which we live, every cultural indicator that Christians have historically cared about is moving in a different direction, with the exception of maybe one or two. Most of them are moving in a different direction uh, than where we as, as Christians who hold historic or orthodox beliefs would want them to go. So the world is increasingly uh, crooked and perverted. Perverted today means just sexual, but it's more than that. There's a perversion of the world that's around us. It's broken and lost. Go, we're going to do everything, everything grumbling and arguing so you may be blameless and pure. Children of God, children of God, looking like, like Jesus. Matter of fact, the grand purpose of discipleship after bringing honor to God, we look at that in verse 13, uh, is to produce in us the character of, of Jesus. The first Christians of Antioch were called Christians. It was a, a term of derision, uh, but their intent was evil, but they couldn't be more accurate. Discipleship is the process of making us look more and live more like Jesus, which was ultimately uh, God's purpose from before time itself, right? For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers, the firstborn among many brothers, so we might look like Jesus in our lives as we grow in discipleship with him. Now, I, have, uh, I mentioned I have three daughters. What's, what's uh, awesome is, is the first one, Kristen, she's my 16-year-old, she looks like her mother, Donna, my wife. And so that's good for her. That's good for her because she's Donna's beautiful, and so Kristen looks like Donna. Um, and so sometimes we call her little Donna. She acts like Donna. She has the same personality, the whole nine yards. My middle child, his name is Jacqueline, and she looks like me, which... It's a little tragic. Um, you slap a goatee on her, you'd think it's me. Um, but she's sort of a, a female version of me. So that's, I mean, it's, it's, she, she's, a, she's a pretty girl. Um, but she doesn't like looking like me. She said, I want to look like mom. I want to look like someone else. Uh, I said, baby, I love you. I know that I, it kind of hurts my feelings, but, she, but, but I get over it. So, but sometimes we call her little Eddie because she looks like me. And my grandmother used to call me Eddie. And you may not. Um, so... And then Caitlin, who I don't know if you saw Caitlin, but Caitlin looks nothing like me and looks nothing like Donna. She has, we have, Donna and I have dark hair and dark eyes. Caitlin has blonde hair and blue eyes and looks nothing like us. And so, um, and so she'll constantly, she's, she's actually asked regularly, are you adopted? Which again, I praise God for adoption, the wrong adoption, but it's just funny. She's, no, I'm not adopted. Um, and, and so, but she looks, and she heard a joke once, she misheard a joke, um, and someone Someone, so, so she now repeats it all the time. Someone asks her, I think she doesn't do it anymore, but she always get a laugh. Someone would say, where did you get your blonde hair and your blue eyes? And she would, because she misheard a joke, she would say, I got it from the mailbox. And, uh, uh, which everyone would laugh like that. And so I let it keep going because she didn't, you know, she misheard the original joke, so that was fine. Um, but so we call um, Donna, we call Kristen Little Donna, Jacqueline Little Eddie, and Caitlin Little Mystery. Uh, it just doesn't look like us. But here's the thing. People always comment on it. Why do they comment on it? Because children, with exceptions like adoption or just exceptions like genetics in my, my youngest daughter, children, in people's mind, are supposed to look like their parents. Well, that, that's kind of what we're seeing here in this verse, is that as children of God, we're supposed to look like God intends and like God is most clearly evidenced in in, in, in the God-man, Jesus the Christ. And so, so that's the picture, is this Christ-like transformation. So this is really key, right? Um, it's, it's, it's important that you love Jesus, but it's vital that you look like Jesus. Say that again. It's important that you lo- love Jesus, but it's vital that you look like Jesus. And, and so that's what discipleship is. It's making people grow more in the knowledge and grace of Jesus. So, for example, when I see stuff like this, um, I see an unengaged church. I regularly use my gifts and talents to serve, help people in need who are not part of my church. And, and what I would say is I see here 61% of people agree. I know that's a little inflated, but as a whole lot of people who are regularly church-going, self-identified Christians who just say can neither agree or disagree, which is basically no, or disagree somewhat or disagree strongly, is I see one of my concerns is, is I see an unengaged church because I see an undiscipled church because people are not growing to look more and more like Jesus. Fifth and finally, we've talked about persistent faithfulness, intentional effort, radical reliance, Christ-like transformation. Fifth and finally, I think. How am I doing on time? Fine. Good. Half hour to go. Great, so we have more Q&A because they were so filled with Q&A last time. Um, 
Fifth and finally is a, uh, an obvious difference, an obvious difference. Um, if you look at um, verse 15, uh, the second part of verse 15, it says this, among whom you shine like stars in the world. Now, the first time that I, the second time I came to Australia, Scott, um, Scott picked me up at the airport in Sydney. Uh, usually he wants me to just take the train. But he, he decided that the first time, we, oh, I'll come get you this time. And then since then, it's take the train. I'm busy. Um, and so I did. Did I not take the train? This time I did. That's because you told me to take the train. Um, you said something like, lazy American. Uh, <laughs> so I jumped on the train, and I, I took the train. Um, so, but first, uh, one of the times he picked me up, I think it was the second time he picked me up, um, we came to the airport, and this, uh, this woman um, took my bag. So we get to the airport, and I'm waiting at the carousel. And as I wait at the carousel, um, do you call it a carousel? Okay. Sometimes you have these different words for things, and I never know. Um, so waiting at the carousel, and my bag's not there, but there's a bag that looks, everyone else is gone, and there's a bag, well, most people are gone, bag that looks very similar to my bag. So we pick it up, and we take it, and no, no more bags come, so we, we, and no one picks up that bag. So we roll it over to baggage claim, baggage services, and we say to them, we think that this person, and they have their name and phone number on the bag, this person has taken our bag. And, and, uh, and so, so the people there call the people and can't reach them. They don't respond. Eventually, they answer the phone, and, and they're home at this point, going through my underwear, uh, and, uh, which is traumatic at best. Uh, and, and so they have taken my bag. And so they go, well, well, I guess, what, what should we do? Well, you bring it back is what you should do. Um, so, so they come back, and we make the shift. And so when I left there, I actually made a determination that I was going to uh, mark my luggage in a way that nobody else would want it. So I got these, these hand tags that are just this very ugly puke green color. Right? So when they come off the bag now, people look at it and they go, oh, oh. Nobody, nobody's grabbing my bag now. Why? Because I made it stand out as an obvious difference. Now, um, among whom you shine the stars. Well, that's a negative example, but let me, let me flip it the other side. So I live in a neighborhood. Um, I live in a cul-de-sac like, uh, like a lot of people probably do, you know, so you kind of go in and, and I've got a street here and there's a street here and, and, uh, and there's a street here and another one here. And so, so it's sort of, you know, our neighborhood sort of represented sort of, you know, out and about. And so I live, I live, uh, I live here. And so when I, um, when I was looking and seeing kind of where um, my neighbors, I, I thought to myself, if you look from, from Google Earth down on your, your, on your neighborhood, I live at the top of the cul-de-sac, and so, and so there's, a, there's a lot here, and there's a lot here, and, and my lot, and here, and, and, you know, and so there's all these lots sort of around like so. And then there are my neighbors back here, and they have their lots. And so what, what I decided to do was I wanted my, my home to stand out um, like my luggage does on the carousel. So this doesn't look dissimilar to a carousel with luggage around it. And it's actually the example I used, right? So... so um, so here's, so here's my, my neighborhood, and, you know, like, like little bags come around. I, what I said was, I want this to be an embassy uh, for the gospel. And so um, and one of the things I decided to do is that I decided to take um, every person that lives within two houses of me, um, i put here, two here, actually, uh, every person that lives within two houses of me, I want to I be in their home and intentionally build a relationship with them for gospel purposes. And so, um, so that's what I've done. And so of the eight, uh, eight neighbors that we, that we have, um, here, this is the eight neighbors that I'm potentially trying to reach. I've had the privilege of being in seven of eight of their homes uh, and sharing the gospel. Well, I've been in their home too. This is the one that I haven't had the privilege of sharing the gospel with. But I've been in seven, eight of their homes and shared the gospel with them. Now, and I'm not just talking about like inviting them to church, but actually sit down, know them well enough, answered questions about the gospel. And it's been really, it's been really neat because um, I've had the privilege of baptizing uh, this family and baptizing this family. In my denominational tradition, someone's baptized after a statement of faith and conversion, a profession of faith. Um, and so, so they're actually now part of our church family, key leaders in our church family. Um, this family I've had the privilege of kind of uh, talking to, but they don't like us. Um, and so that hasn't worked out so well. So, uh, um, but, 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 you know, but, but uh, and I actually wrote about them in Subversive Kingdom when they talk about turning the other cheek. So if you're interested, you can read their story. I don't say their names, but uh, you can tell if you read it. Um, and so, but, but of those people, like, so this family here I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with. 
and they even came to our church. Um, he grew up in a, in, a, in a context, in a European context, where he had never been to church. And so when we were studying the Bible, I said, turn to Matthew 4, 11. He would say, right, who's Matthew, and why are there numbers after his name? And so, but now, they actually, our church, they came to our church, and our church is, is, was, too, was too much for them. We're, very, we're a contemporary church, and so, et cetera. So they're in a gospel-teaching uh, Methodist church now. He's, he's professed Christ since then, and, and, uh, and so really encouraged. And like I said, I, I've had the privilege of, of leading to Christ and, and baptizing others. As a matter of fact, in our group that meets in our home from our neighborhood, uh, we have about eight families, and four of them have actually come to Christ and been baptized, uh, and now are meeting weekly here. Um, and some of them, for example, these, these folks right here, the Lesters, uh, they, they come, they've been there the last two weeks, I'm not sure if they were there on Sunday, uh, but I'm consistently sharing the gospel with them, we're kind of praying and hoping uh, that they'll trust Christ. Others have said, actually she's very clear, she's not, she's not interested, partly because of our stand on uh, some issues related to biblical morality, uh, and that's the most common reason people decide not to come and connect to our church today, uh, and so that would certainly be the case with her, uh, and this, and this, this, this family kind of lukewarm towards, towards any kind of faith conversation. Now, my point is this, is that my desire was um, that looking down on Google Earth like, uh, like a luggage standing out on a carousel, uh, we, we now we have agents of God's mission who are in this community, right? So, so now the three of us here are seeking to evangelize the rest of us here. So we actually coordinate our actions and our activities at the time. There's actually another family who lives over here, but then another, another in, down here. Um, but, but here's, so what I, what I don't want you to miss is, is that part of what discipleship means is that there needs to be an obvious difference and people should be able to identify there's something different about those people living in that house. And might I also say, if you're a pastor and a church leader, um, don't drive past your neighbors to do ministry for the gospel. Uh, neighbor is both a noun and a verb. You are a neighbor, but you neighbor. And, and, and what I would say is, is, is if you haven't intentionally strategized to reach your neighbors, uh, I think you can't stand before your church and tell them to do that. When you haven't done that, you can't lead what you don't live. Uh, and so, so, you know, help them to do that. But my point is this, is I want, I want, to, I want to, and I'm not saying I'm a perfect example by any stretch of means. I'm trying to, trying to give an example of where I've imperfectly but sought to engage my communities. Why? Because I want to stand out as different in my neighborhood. So we, when someone moves in the neighborhood, we bring them cookies. When there's a uh, block party, and I don't know if you call it a block party here, but we close off the streets and we have a party once a year, uh, our, our home hosts that. Um, and so, so we do that. Why? Because we want to shine like stars in the world. We want to be about this gospel work like stars in the world. Now, this is the kind of stuff that requires you some self-denial. And, and, and if we're going to have this obvious difference, people have to have a change in their, in their lives. Um, and so let's take a look, right? So, so here's another stat, right? In the past six months, how many times have you personally done any of the following? Made a decision to obey and follow God with an awareness that choosing his way might be costly to you in some way. Not even a big way. The most common answer is zero. The second most common answer is one. And if in six months there's not decisions you are making that have no cost in your life, then perhaps your, your, your understanding of discipleship is pretty, is pretty cheap. Uh, and, I, and I guess I'm a believer in costly discipleship. It probably started because when I was, a, uh, when I was, when I was 15, I was a new believer, and I was being discipled. By, uh, by a guy who didn't know anything about what he was doing, nor did I. Um, but he was the youth pastor, not the youth pastor, he was the volunteer youth leader at a small church plant, a small Anglican church plant where I had come to Christ in. And, uh, and he, came to, he came to me and said, well, we're going to be the youth group. There's like two of us. And I said, what should we do? He said, well, we should probably get a book on discipleship or something, because I heard the, the pastor talk about discipleship. So we went and got a book on discipleship. And there's only one book on discipleship that was in the shelf, I guess, we looked at. And so the first book I read on discipleship when I was 15 was called Costly Disciple, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And a, kind of a light read, for sure. Uh, and I didn't know any better. You know, I'm like 15 years old. I think the second book I read was, If, if God Loves Me, Why Can't I Get My Locker Open? Uh, and it was right after The Cost of Discipleship by, by Bonhoeffer. But I, I would just say that, that there needs to be an obvious difference. An obvious difference comes when people are changed and denying themselves and are ultimately a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Uh, to, and again, they proclaim the one, the praise of the one who's called you to darkness into his, into his marvelous light. Becoming different doesn't happen by accident. All the world is calling us to look similar, but the gospel is calling us to look uh, different. And we are different as a result of discipleship. Now, let me come back to show you this, this graph real quickly, and then I'll, then I'll just open it for questions. So one of the things we did in this research project, we did this transformational discipleship research um, in three languages, English, uh, Spanish, and French. 
And because our desire was to help people to grow as disciples. And one of the things we do at our church is we actually measure these attributes of discipleship. And once a year, we go through and do a spiritual formation uh, survey of our congregation. And people get back their results that kind of look like this. Um, and, and they kind of see their individual results. And then it has some next steps for them to take. Uh, on, on this spiritual uh, journey. So, for example, uh, if they're serving on another score was 3.5, we'd say it's important to know how you engage in service um, and, and here are your lowest scores and here are your consistent positive responses and then what should you do about this. And, 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 and in our case, group leaders can actually read the results of the group and the church can read the whole thing. And then we have suggestions of next step actually, uh, actually to take for obeying God and denying self. And actually, this is what the report looks like, the group. So a group leader or a church leader as a whole can look at this and say, we've got to do better at sharing. This one would say, so sharing Christ and being unashamed are key issues for them. The doctrinal positions, in case you're wondering, are, are just standard evangelical doctrinal positions. If you hold general evangelical doctrinal positions, uh, which you'd be surprised to find out how many evangelicals actually don't, um, you, you'd, you'd find this here. And then detailed responses for each, you know, each uh, you know, each question or each focal area, things of that sort. Um, anyway, so, so I want to I open up your questions, and, and I'll, I'll leave the screen here in case I want to pull up other data to, to show you. But the theme has been disciple-making. But I want to say to you earlier that if you were kind of, you know, we were just starting off the day, and you weren't sure if you should or could ask a question about the, the mission theme that I laid out, I'll open that up to you as well, and we'll just take uh, questions until, uh, until we are, uh, you got a mic right there, until Scott gives us the signal or else he gives us a signal to move on. So good. Who, who might have a question for what we covered either this morning or uh, a little later this morning? Yeah, we got one over here, and we'll head over to you with the mic. Excellent. If you wouldn't mind, uh, introduce yourself, say your name, and uh, maybe your church, or if you're a student, tell me that, or if you're, church, if you're serving in a church. Great. Are you the pastor? I am. Awesome. Good deal. Um, in Ipswich. In Ipswich. Ipswich. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Center of, yeah. <laughs> center of the universe. I like a man who's subtle about where he lives. Yeah. Um, can I just go back to something you mentioned earlier? Your six marks. Yeah. Can yeah. You just run sure. Through? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll put them up here. Um, all right. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Oh, here it is. Right here. Right here. I love the search function. On I do. I do a seminar on uh, on kind of church change and innovation. Um, and, and in there, and I wrote an article in here, and I talk about ecclesiology. I'm very concerned about ecclesiology. Um, and in there, I talk about some marks. Come on, come on. We can find it. I'm flipping through very fast, and I'm stalling while I talk. Um, here we go. So these are the, the, what I just found as the marks, uh, the essentials that have to be um, in, a, in a church. Uh, so I think scriptural authority, uh, biblical leadership. Um, and again, I, I think like Anglicans, you'd have bishops, and you might, you might, you might expand a little bit of the of what I just see typically as pastors and deacons, but biblical leadership, preaching and teaching, uh, the functioning of the ordinances, which in my tradition is, is generally baptism and the Lord's Supper, covenant community, and then engaging in mission are marks uh, of a biblical church. But I talk about these as the essentials, and then I talk about how we apply the essentials in different ways. Some things are essentials, some things are convictions, some things are preferences. Let me just quickly show you. Talk about the regular and informed principle, blah, blah, blah. Let's see. Okay. So then I talk about this in the term of a matrix. And so I might say in an Anglican, um, in an Anglican context, so I might have my six marks are script, scriptural authority, biblical leadership, preaching and teaching, ordinances, mission, and covenant community. That might be convictional in some Anglican churches. And, you know, you do know that Australian Anglicanism is, like, not mainstream Anglicanism around the world. Um, and so, so, so you might have, for example, scripture as old and gospel and epistle service. Um, bishops, pastors, and deacons would be the biblical leadership understanding for Anglicans. Word of God central, maybe a weekly Eucharist, which is much more common than the rest of the Anglicans in the world. Spiritual presence through the Lord's Supper and, and, and uh, you know, some Anglicans. And infant baptism. Mission is apostolic mission for world evangelization. Um, and then covenant community, be members in community with each other and under a diocesan bishop, which I know is, again, not always the case in here. I was talking more specifically about U.S., uh, Anglicanism. I work a lot with the uh, ACNA, the New Anglican Province. And then here's a preferential thing. Some might recite a creed, some might not. Some might have a vestry or church council, some might not. Some might follow the lectionary, some might not. So these are the things that make you, I think, a biblical church. 
These are things that make you an Anglican expression of a biblical church based on your conviction, and these are the things that you just kind of do or don't do based upon your preference in your church. Some churches would Alpha Course, some churches wouldn't like the Alpha Course, might do Christianity Explored or Explained. Um, you know, and so, so these are kind of different preferences. And then if you compare that to Baptists, for example, um, you know, same idea here might be the six essentials convictionally applied uh, that, uh, and this, 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 this actually kind of describes my church, by the way. Uh, public reading and application of scripture, that's a conviction for us. We have pastors and deacons by conviction, expository preaching by conviction, believers' baptism by immersion, and memorials Lord's Supper by conviction, mission-minded and missional, autonomous body of baptized believers in our covenant community, not under a diocesan bishop, but local church autonomy. And this is just stuff we could do or not do. You know, we could use a modern translation, do a dramatic portrayal, a video, whatever. Support something like a, it's a thing in my denominational tradition, the cooperative program. Church member requires a course. Those are, so these are preferential things. These are things that, depending on what you believe, you could end up in a different denomination. Presbyterians will hold a different view than Baptists will or than Anglicans will on some of these things as well. So those are the six marks and kind of fleshed out. Way more answer to your question than you wanted, uh, but... Uh, that's the joys of having the laptop right here. So, so, and we talked some about the danger of innovating the essentials, right? If you take an essential value and you make an inappropriate innovation or an appropriate innovation, you, you end up problematic. This is a whole other seminar, though. whole other seminar for another day, and you don't get that seminar until I come back and stay for a month and we spend a little time together every day. Uh, yes, ma'am, in the back. Um, my name is Sally. Hi, Sally. Good deal. What do you do at Christ Community Church? I'm just a congregation, but I'm also a student. Sweetness. All right, good deal. Um, I'm just asking, um, as far as I can understand, the American church has more people who aren't actually born-again believers uh-huh. um, than the Australian church. So do you think that that has an impact on um, the, like the stats that you're giving us? Like, because I think um, that would... I think that would make a difference in the Australian culture. Yeah, no question, which is a kind of a key theme. I hope you heard me saying each day over and over again is that, um, is that these are going to be different. And I hope that more and more people in the, uh, in the Australian context will do the kind of research that answers some of these questions. Now, um, I think it's a little bit, uh, one of the things that I think is important to remember is that there is a, um, a, a very clear sense that the Australian church is going through some shifts right now. Um, you don't use the term mainline, but mainline Protestantism is, uh, is what we generally call old-line Protestantism. So uniting church, you're here from the uniting church. Uh, uh, Anglican churches maybe outside of the kind of this evangelical um, uh, subset of Anglicans in Australia. And so really what I want to encourage you to look at, there's, there's a couple of helpful books that I think will, uh, will help on this. One of them is uh, Stuart Piggins' book. Uh, it's, it's called Spirit, Word, and World, Evangelical Christianity in Australia. Because um, now the, the, the growing, Catholics are the largest segment, but not the largest practicers. So, so, so there are disproportionately born again in the U.S. This is actually a Canadian sample as well. But, but the U.S. sample tends to wait everything else because it's such a big country. Um, but when we break down the Canadian sample by the U.S. sample, the practicers of religion are not that difference, different. And so Australia is a compressed by about 3 or 4% more down from where Canada is. And so we would expect sort of similar, similar numbers uh, between the two. Um, I can actually show you uh, the Canadian numbers um, that, I th- that I think you'd find. I'll just do it real quickly. I think you'd find pretty uh, fascinating. If anything, um, it is, a, it is a, lower, uh, a lower percentage of practice and, uh, and belief than the U.S. numbers. You know, the U.S. is disproportionately, in the English-speaking Western world, it disproportionately holds a higher religiosity, we say, uh, in statistics. Um, but uh, and it's important to note that, that that's not the most evangelical country in the world. You know, Guatemala now is the most evangelical country in the world, 56% self-identified, well, depending on what survey you use. Um, but, here, but here's the Canadian numbers compared to the U.S. numbers on the questions we just, we just looked at. So you can see the shift is pretty substantive um, to the negative um, when we look to the Canadian numbers. So the, the, the born-againers, which I don't like to use, but you get my point. The born-againers make it look better than it probably is in Australia. So it's probably statistically more of an uphill challenge than in the Australian context. Uh, if you just look at Bible reading, for example. Um, these are, remember, this, but these are, these are churchgoers. These are not random Canadians or random Americans. These are churchgoers. 
Um, and so, the, you know, in Canada, the most common answer to an actual regular Protestant churchgoer is I, re- I never read the Bible. Um, rarely or never read the Bible. Um, and how often do I study it? I rarely or never study the Bible. And so the numbers are pretty. This is just Canada. This is the white is just is just Canada. And you can go on and on and on. I mean, it's 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 um, it's challenging. I, I want I want to uh, I'd love to one day. You know, we do research in Australia. Love to, but but we you know you have to have funders and partners. But one day I would love to I would love to uh, ask some of these questions in in Australia. For example, for a regular church going attender in the past six months, how many times have you personally done any of the following? Share with someone how to become a Christian. Uh, the most common answer is uh, is is no zero seventy eight percent. I want to meet the person who's has shared 16 plus people in the last uh, six months. I'm kind of, I think that'd be kind of awesome, um, but there's pretty low engagement. And so anyway, anyway, I, I answer, I answer long questions. I should answer more briefly, but I get kind of excited. Uh, and so, I, thank you, thank you for your kindness. Nobody else has said it was a helpful answer. Yeah, did you get that down when you wrote that down? Okay, good, good, good. This is the write down guy. Um, you talked about people's personal engagement with the Bible as being kind of a key factor mm-hmm. in them not only growing as a Christian, but being engaged in meaningful um, ministry and mission. And every factor, yeah. Every factor. Yeah. So um, what are some things that we can do to cultivate that as a culture in our churches, help people do that individually? It's great, great question. You know, for a guy not writing down some of the key stuff, that is a great question. Um, what's your name? Is it Lee? Joel. Joel, Joel, Lee, very similar. Um, they both include letters from the alphabet. Um, by the way, the funniest thing, my daughter, she just, you know, she's American uh, like me, but I spell my name, you know, S-T-E-T-Z-E-R. And so when I'm here, of course, you know, I mean, I say Zed, and, and she corrects me in front of her. It's like, so we'll be at a restaurant, I'll be S-T-E-T-Z-E-R, and she says, it's Z, it's Z. I'm like, baby, no, it's Zed here. And so she's like, it can't be Zed. What, is that? Is that, what, what does that even mean? So I, I haven't yet had the privilege of taking her through anthropology and cross-cultural communication as an 11-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Swedish-looking child. Um, so, so, you know, if Bible engagement is the, is the number one factor that leads to all the others, um, it, it, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what I did. What we did at our church is we did a Bible engagement campaign. I mean, so, so you remember, remember uh, Jason here, Jason and Elizabeth and the white, the white kids. They're all, the, they're all families, the white family, which is always awkward when we say, okay, all the white kids, come on. Uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> but that's their name. So it's like, what do we do with this, right? So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's literally been awkward. So, but th- this is C- Caitlin's best friend, actually. So, so C- Caitlin's best friend is the white kids and... Um, and so Jason and Elizabeth, I had the privilege of uh, praying with and baptizing and discipling. And so Jason and Bruce, who also go to our group that I, that I had the privilege of baptizing, trusting to see him trust Christ, lead, lead he and Beth to Christ and seeing him. Uh, I'm discipling those two men. Um, and I have also, just so, so I don't want you women to feel, I have a women's mentoring group. I know that's weird that I would have a women's mentoring group, but I have a women's mentoring group. So I, I, I'm also engaged in, I want to raise up women leaders. I think that um, we don't want to leave out. Actually, the majority of the body of Christ is actually women. And so very thanks. So I lead a women's mentor group. If you're interested, you could Google my name about how I created a women's mentor group, why I think it matters. But I'm discipling these two men, and uh, Jason is one of them. So, so with Jason, um, new believer, never read the Bible much before. And so, um, so I know that if I can just get him reading the scriptures, he'll see life change all over. And so the first thing is we go get a Bible, which, which is the funny thing, because like he, wanted, so he, went, he picked out the apologetics study Bible. Uh, and okay, I mean, it's not my choice, but okay. So he gets the Apologetic Study Bible, which now has turned him into very funny at like small groups. So he, he'd be like, he'd be like reading. And, and so he's kind of like, you know, we're saying, well, let's look at, you know, whatever passage, Exodus, whatever. And so he'll go like this and say, well, you know, that's a key theme that's throughout the entire Old Testament about God saving his people. I'm like, okay, Jason, I have the study Bible. I know what you're reading at the bottom of the study Bible. But Elizabeth came to me and said, um, and said, said the most important thing has led to his life change in every other area. It's he's reading the Bible and daily, actually daily, she said. Um, and and so, so for me, I know if I can get Jason reading the Bible daily. Now, Bruce isn't a reader. He doesn't like to read. He's a, he can read. He reads fine. But you know, he's post-literate in some ways. People are post, we live in a post-literate culture. And so for him, I said, well, why don't we have you start out in audio? Um, and now he's moved to more reading. I don't think reading is discipleship. I don't think, I think you can be in an oral culture, 
But I think that since God has chosen his word to be written down in words, that we do a service to people when we help them to engage the written word, not just the heard word. Though I'm for that too, so you can listen to podcast teaching, all that sort of stuff. But so in both their cases, I know that if I disciple them. So, so we did that individually. So here's how we did it congregationally. We did a Bible reading campaign. So we did a Bible reading campaign. We did Read the Bible for Life by George Guthrie. Um, and so we asked everyone to make a commitment, and we started by reading through the New Testament, which doesn't seem like a lot, you know, because a lot of people want to start reading through the Old Testament. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I, you know I, don't, I don't want to sort of start. I mean, everyone gets enthusiastic, starts in Genesis. It's really cool. Exodus, lots of, you know, kings and pharaohs and cool stuff. And, and you get to Leviticus, and you're ready to leave the faith. Uh, you know, when you get to that chapter on skin diseases, you're not sure why it's there. And you're just kind of like, no, man, what is this about? Um, and I love the Old Testament. You know, I know Gary is like a professor of the Old Testament. So I have to be, so I, so I believe in all the Bible being, you know, inspired and, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't want to start new believers in the book of Leviticus, and that's where they end up in just a few months. So, so we got the whole church to read through the New Testament. We actually, every Sunday, had people update where they were and how the reading was going. Uh, we actually had conversation. We had people to give testimonials about it. So it's a whole kind of church-wide campaign. And again, I don't, I don't even know if it's available here. I mean, but, but, uh, but there are others as well. Just I, What I would do is I would do a Bible reading campaign at the beginning of every year, because um, people have these resolutions they do. People are into the resolutions. So I'd say to them, why don't your resolutions be to read the Bible through in a year, if you're, you've been around for a while, or to just begin reading the Bible every day as part of our re- re- resolution. Actually, I don't even say every day, because I, I say regularly. I say, let's read five days a week, and then if they miss a day, they can, I, just, I just want them in the Word regularly. I'll give you another example. So I was preaching for a guy. I saw his name on the screen a minute ago. James McDonald's a pastor in the States. And so James was uh, out, and so I was filling in for James, preaching at his church one Sunday. And, you know, when you preach for some people, they... It's funny, because, you know, I, when I preached at, uh, uh, at Saddleback, and I, get to, I hope I can say this without, like, you guys saying, oh, name dropping. It's just, these are just friends. So I preached at Saddleback, and it's like, here's your theme, just preach on whatever you want. And when you preach for, like, John Piper, it's an interrogation on what you're going to preach. Uh, and so it was interesting. So, you know, John's like, okay, you got to do this. Gotta... But when I, when I was preaching for James one Sunday, he, I think I sent the message ahead of time anyway, but he said to me, here's just one thing I want to say to you. I would like you to say to people uh, to actually uh, open their Bible. Am I borrow your Bible for a second? This looks like you've actually used this one. Let's see the verses you highlighted so we know the sins you're struggling with. Uh, <laughs> the Lord will help you with that one, brother, right there. Um, and so, so what he says is just make sure you tell people to open their Bibles because we want people to bring paper Bibles to church. And then what he said, which was the most interesting to me, he said to, he said to make sure, I'm not going to write in your Bible, but he said to make sure you say to them, now now circle this part or underline this part. And I said, well, that's pretty fascinating because a lot of people in my church would turn on their Bible, you know, like, like the press a button and pull up the electronics. He says, no, no, I want people to get used to having their Bible open and their pen in hand so that on Monday they'll continue to do what they were doing on Sunday. And I will tell you, I came back from the church that day and changed our approach to our church. I said to people, I'm not banning electronic devices. You know, I'm not a Luddite who says you can't have these things. But I said, listen, I want to ask you to bring your paper Bible. I told our staff, I don't want you reading from your electronic Bibles when you're preaching or, or you teach or our worship leader will read scripture. Uh, I want you to use a paper Bible, and I want you to say to people, open it and underline and mark. So we're teaching people, because here's the deal. If you, I mean, you're, you're at this great institution, right? Are you doing, those of you who are students, are you, are you under, I don't know if you use the same term, are you undergraduate students the first four years or are you graduate students like doing master's degrees or is it a mix? It's a mix, okay. Um, when you go to a, a school like uh, QTC and you, you learn, you take Greek, I'm guessing, and you take Hebrew and, and, uh, and those of you who went to other schools as well, just because we're at QTC, I'm referring to it here, um, is, is you learn some things that you can actually undermine your congregation with. When you get up with your Bible and you say, you know, the, the, the original language says this, and the translators kind of miss this, and you're constantly correcting the translation and teaching people that you have some sort of secret knowledge that they can never have, what you're teaching people is that the Bible they have is unreliable and they shouldn't engage it without your guidance. And when you teach people that, you disempower their own spiritual formation and growth. You tell your people to open their Bible, read their Bible, and be changed by their Bible. Because in doing so, that's part of key central to how they're going to be discipled. So again, long answer. Sorry. Uh, others? We got another one? Yes, ma'am. Uh, you, 
Um, Claire Smith went from um, Salvos in Gympie. And say the name of the town again? Gympie, two and a half hours north of here. Gympie? It's called Gimpy. Yeah. I mean, really, it's called Gimpy because that's a person who like limps. Uh, we don't even use that word. That's an offensive word. It really is. You can't say someone's Gimpy. It's like you know saying they're anyway. So you're from Gimpy. It's a gold rush town. Okay, so you're from Gimpy, and you're from and you said you're from Salvi's. No, Salvos. But I'm just I'm fascinated by the everything is shortened here. You can't even say Salvation Army because like, oh, I'm too tired. I'm in a rush. It's Salvos. I love that. Yeah. Okay, good. Turn the public love. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. Um, you actually answered part of my okay. part of my question because we've been um, church pastors for over twenty years yeah. and found it very difficult to get people to read the Bible. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I've grown up with a real love of the Bible and 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 especially the Old Testament and um, sort of so we've sort of preached through the Bible and you know I've done overviews of all the books and and done sermons as well, but. Still, it never seems to have worked. And yeah. Yeah, for 20 years, we've sort yeah. of been frustrated with uh, people not appreciating yeah. the, the wealth and the, that there is in, in God's Word. So, yeah, thanks for that. Because that is a, a human idea of how to start. Yeah, and I would just be, I would be encouraged. 20 years is good, and I'm not going to stand up for you and say, oh, well, here's the one trick that'll change 20 years of challenge. It's going to be 20 more years of challenge. But what I would say is people don't do what you expect, they do what you inspect. So get them together to do something. And, and, and do it in community, uh, do it in groups. As a matter of fact, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a study that I'm not showing you because Scott would only let me have a few topics, and I never liked him. Uh, and, uh, and, but let me, let me show you real quickly um, just a quick study um, that might be helpful. Let's see. Because, um, because one of the things that we find is, is that groups make such a huge difference. Now, of course, this goes, you know, Salvation Army has historically had group cells, you know, connections, things of that sort. By the way, I'm interested. When I put up the essentials and I included the, the, uh, the ordinances, did, did you want to, like, stand up and say, but not in the Salvation Army? Yeah. You know, the Salvation Army historically doesn't do baptism and Lord's Supper because they, cause, and so people always ask me, well, why do you put that? And I would say, well, I, I don't agree with them, but I think they love Jesus and they're doing good stuff. Um, so, so, so take a look at this, though. Compare when groups and not groups. Look, look at this difference right here. If I go several days without reading the Bible, I find myself unfulfilled, which is the same question that you saw earlier, right? And so look at the difference. It's double if you're in a group versus not being in a group. So, so being in a group correlates with your own personal Bible engagement, okay? And so, so, it's, it's, so it's, it's fascinating to see that, that life together really matters. Life together really does matter. Good. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Good.